Well, Frederick, if you conscientiously feel that it is your duty to destroy us, we cannot blame you for acting on that conviction. Always act in accordance with the dictates of your conscience, my boy, and chance the consequences. The Pirate King, Pirates of Penzance, by W.S. Gilbert. Hi, and welcome to Epigraph. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. And this episode, we are going to discuss the 19th century operetta, The Pirates of Penzance, by the playwrights Gilbert and Sullivan, and the relationship between the play itself and the idea of sanity, um, as it's both, both, both as sanity is necessary to enjoy it and as sanity is presented by the playwrights. <laughs> I've got to jump in there and say that Gilbert is the librettist, the playwright. Sullivan wrote the music. We're not really going to get into the music I don't expect. So this is mostly a conversation about Gilbert. Which also brings up another great point, which is as familiar as I am with the Pirates of Penzance, Maria vastly exceeds me in her knowledge of the context and sort of background information on all the works that were done by Gilbert and Sullivan, but as as she points out rightly that we're not I have no comments on the music. Maybe she'll have comments on on the way that the music plays into it. But so why don't you why don't you start by giving the sort of a very brief context for what what these plays are speci- specifically in terms of what were they trying to do when they wrote them? What kind of piece of art is it? And then we'll go from there. Because my understanding first, so they're they're operettas, so they're they they're state they're stage performances. Mm-hmm. They were there's both spoken word as well as music. Yes, there's lots of music in them, but there is also spoken dialogue, which means that they're not operas. Operetta also usually implies a lighter tone and probably not as difficult of music as an opera. And so. Most of them, almost all of the 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 the, the operators that they wrote, and this one, this one in particular, is comedic and satirical. Mm-hmm. Would you? Is there anything else that you'd add in terms of a description to that, or maybe maybe add some some detail to that description? Well, Gilbert and Sullivan were coming out of a. a there was a tradition of operettas and comic operas at the time that they were sort of responding to, um, especially French operettas. Uh, they were pretty risque, actually, some of them. And, uh, and so Gilbert and Sullivan were creating a, a family-friendly right. sort of... Yes. They were sort of the Rodgers and Hammerstein of their day, in a lot okay, of ways. Great. Um, yeah. Although they're which, not... Actually, they're not even as edgy as Rodgers and Hammerstein. Which, we're and talking the, about Victorian England I was going to say, and, right, and their day is Victorian England, which is a pretty, you know, that's a pretty wide slice of recent English history, but mm-hmm. um, they were kind of later in Queen Victoria's day. Is that right? Yes. Okay. They, oh, I'm going to get the dates wrong, but I think that their their first collaboration was in the 1860s and their last one was in the 18... No, I think their first one was in the 1870s and their last one was in the 1890s. They wrote 14 operettas altogether. Uh, Pirates of Penzance was actually fairly early on in their okay. collaboration. They had written uh, technically two full-length operettas before they got there. One of them is lost. We don't have the music oh, or even the full libretto was anymore. Was it performed? And, yes. Oh. In fact, it was quite popular. Fascinating. Uh, and, so, and they were generally popular. Oh, oh, they were so popular. And I know that their, their popularity has continued. They're still Gilbert and Sullivan acting troops that 
like that's what they do is Gilbert and Sullivan plays. Yeah, and... but they're a lot rarer than they used to be. Okay, <laughs> they're a vanishing breed. To all, all to our loss, which may relate to the later part of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they were very popular at the time. Did people see them primarily? As, uh, what did What do you think people saw them as at the time? Did they see them as primarily satirical, or was it more like light entertainment? Or did the I mean, did people look see them as like quite something that was quite clever? At the time as well. What what do you know what it was that drew people when they were writing? They I think it's a mix. They're very good entertainment mm-hmm. in their way. Mm-hmm. It's not a way that would necessarily appeal to a lot of people right now, but you know, popular tastes change. They're very, very popular at the time. Their their longest running performance their longest running operetta in the original performance was the Mikado, which ran for over two years in its original run. And, you know, wow. now we're yeah. in the days of Broadway runs of over 20 years for the longest running ones. But, but that was like unheard of at the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, more than 600 performances. So I think they're very good entertainment. Uh, Sullivan wrote very listenable music. <laughs> yes. Um, it, you know, it's not hard to grasp, but it's also not boring. It's not shallow. It's not particularly shallow. Yeah. And Gilbert also, you know, some of his work is very topical, so it doesn't necessarily carry over all that well now in the more satirical, pointed aspects of it. But he also wrote you know, he was he was a playwright before he was a librettist. He wasn't just phoning it in on these, and he's a very clever lyricist. And I think he just writes enjoyable plays. I, I don't know if you know this. Do you, have you heard of the, the really popular, speaking of Broadway play, Hamilton from maybe seven or eight years yeah. ago? Yeah. yeah. Do you know that that's heavily influenced by, by Gilbert and Sullivan in terms of Lin-Manuel Miranda's like, lyrical style? Um, I'm not surprised. He makes, and he makes direct reference. He actually, I think in one of the songs he makes direct reference, he quotes the Major General song. George Washington sings about being a modern major general or something okay there is a there's a whole i'm not gonna call it a field of study because (laughs) it's not big enough for that but there is a this whole scholarly discussion about the extent to which you can trace modern musicals directly back to gilbert and sullivan Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like the whole... Because the, what's so interesting is that when you're when we were talking about operettas initially, I just thought, oh, well, this is just what we'd call a musical now. But then it was called an operetta, and I, was, I thought, well, was there something also called a musical at the same time? No. But it's really born out of the, the operetta, mm-hmm. and particularly the Gilbert and Sullivan's operettas, maybe. Some people would, would tell you it's a direct line. Other people would argue for more of a disconnect, and I don't think anyone's going to say there's no influence. That's interesting. Interesting. All right, well, let's... Okay, so uh, I don't want to just talk about Gilbert and Sullivan. I do want to just talk about Gilbert and Sullivan, <laughs> but not for this. Um, so, I, and, I, and I can't remember when this thought struck me for the first time, but I was, I was thinking about, if anyone doesn't know, the rough, the rough story of the Pirates of Penzance is there's this young boy named Frederick who's been accidentally taken in as the apprentice of pirates. <laughs> and he believes that he's fulfilled his, apprent- his obligation as an apprentice at the opening his, on his birthday. He goes off with his uh, nurse, Ruth, encounters the numerous beautiful daughters of a major general. Um, the pirates come to marry all of them. The major general escapes on the claims that he's an orphan, and the pirates, all being orphans themselves, let him go. And then the first act closes. Well, the pirates have a policy of never 
attacking an orphan. Of never attacking an orphan. And so because he's an orphan and claims that the sole props of his old age will be taken away from him, they say, oh, we can't marry these, do- these girls. And they, they let him go, you know, with their, with their blessing and, and goodwill of the pirates. So then the second part of the play, um, we find the Major General struck with remorse over the fact that he's lied to the pirates and thinks he's going to, it's going to come in, uh, it's going to come back for him. It's going to come back and bite him. And sure enough, it does. The Pirate King and Ruth come and collect Frederick on the claims that his apprenticeship was supposed to last until his 21st birthday, not until his 21st year. And so then because he's born on a leap day, he's going to, what does what the math work out to, 484? He's an He'll apprentice be, until he's been alive for 84 years. So the, the, daughter, the, the daughter of the Major General, Maybell, who's one of the main characters who's in love with him, you know, bids him adieu and that he needs to go and fulfill his obligations to this contract. And so he goes off. He comes back. The the at that point the pirate king, sorry the the general brings in these various this troop of policemen to defend him. The pirates come back to have their vengeance on the pirate king for being tricked, which Frederick feels he must reveal to them as a, as a point of duty. Um, and then there's a, a final showdown between the the pirates and the police officers, which ends with what a proclamation of loyalty to the. To, to Queen Victoria on the well, part of the pirates. Well, there's a showdown between the pirates and the policemen. Yes. And then Ruth, Frederick's nurse, reveals... Well, the policemen have overcome the pirates. They're about to walk them off to the police station. But Ruth, the nurse, reveals that actually all these pirates <laughs> are noblemen who have gone wrong. And because <laughs> with all their faults, they love their peers. <laughs> Britain, Britain does. Britain does, yes. Um, the Major General says, you know, let bygones be bygones. All of you go back to your peerdoms and marry my daughters. <laughs> and then everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. And then yeah. everyone's happy. So, and and then I grew up on the very excellent movie production of it, um, which cut a few of the songs, but is, is thoroughly enjoyable. And as a child, I was fascinated with all of the sets mm-hmm. um, and wished that I could go and visit them. But So I was thinking about that. I was particularly thinking about the closing of it. And this, there's... And so obviously it's silly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's obviously silly. Like, it's obviously very silly and also satirical, right? So we'll start at the end and maybe work backwards. And I, and I want to talk about what, what, I'm, what I'm seeing there. So the idea, the, the sort of the resolution of it is in the fact that Britain loves their, their, their nobility and their queen. Mm-hmm. And that somehow that, like... Makes it fine that they've been committing acts of piracies on the uh, piracy on the high seas for most of their life, but so so this is this is exactly this, here here here's what I'm after. There's sort of two forms of sanity that's involved in that being a joke, and why that's funny. So one is is that obviously that doesn't atone for piracy, mm-hmm. right? That's the obvious one to me. Obviously, it's just saying, oh well, you know, they're from the House of Peers, so they you know they. Get, <laughs> it's just, that is just funny. <laughs> it's fine that they've been on, you know, robbing people on the high seas. But the second part of the sanity, and this is what's so interesting to me, is that is that in, in Britain, the Queen really did form like the sort of the thing that held the country together. And so when you think about like I'm gonna we're gonna I'm I'm about to attempt some sort of symbolic interpretation of the Pirates of Incense, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> But you have, right, the, the question is essentially, how do you take these, these men on the edge of society, these pirates, how do you integrate them in, back into society? How do you find peace between the, 
the crazy men out on the ocean, you know, the place of chaos who want to come in and steal your daughters and enslave your young men. How do you, where is this, where is the unity? How, how do you piece everything together? How is there not just conflict between say the, the, the policemen say the, they are the, the forceful form of order in society. And you have the pirates who are the, the chaotic aspect of society. How, how can there be peace? How can it be a comedy and not a tragedy? And what I think Gilbert is writing is it's, it's in the love of the country embodied in, in, the, in the figure of royalty. Do you buy that? Because to me, that's remarkably sane, actually, to say we can't just have a society and expect everyone to like work it out together. There has to be some single object of love that we all look at and say, we love this. And so, you know, in spite of our faults, we can, we can, we can live together in peace because we love the same thing. And there's also, there's, there's the, the aspect of mutual love as well. So it's important, not just that the, the pirates have said, we love our queen. Yes. And importantly, that's why they have submitted to the policemen in the first part. They do submit. Yes. That's very important. That's very important. But yes, the policemen charge the pirates to yield in Queen Victoria's name. And these pirates who have been fighting back against the policemen all of a sudden say, you've charged us in Queen Victoria's name. With all our faults, we love our queen. Here's our sword. We yield. We yield. And so you introduce that peace Mm -hmm. through the common object of love. Yeah. But the restoration actually comes through mutual love of each other, right? Because mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. the major general say, we love the pirates, you mm-hmm. know, because all of a sudden they've been transformed into, <laughs> into peers. peers. And the pirates love the daughters. Right. Who they then yes. marry. And so yes. there's yes. where the reintegration really comes. And so just as we're starting at the end, you know, it's a comedy. And what I think is a remarkable piece of sanity is that comedy is almost used to end in marriages mm-hmm. and preferably multiple preferably multiple and that's and so 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 let that well that'll take us to an earlier point that i think is really interesting which is the relationship between ruth and frederick so ruth is frederick's old nursery maid who is deaf which is is mostly deaf she's very hard of hearing which is interesting well that's a very important plot point for the actions before the story but it doesn't really have anything to do with what happens during the play <laughs> Well, okay, I'm going to make an argument for it. Okay. It's sort of in terms of the type of her character. Because she's in love with Frederick, who is her... her. I mean, she's, sort of, she's almost like her son, right? She's basically the mother figure for him. She's, she's accidentally enrolled him as a, as a pirate's apprentice because of her bad <laughs> hearing. But then she, she goes along with it, right? She, she, she's followed him around all these years until he's hit his 21st year. Mm-hmm. You know, she hasn't abandoned him in the midst of this. She's the only woman amongst these pirates. And she, she loves Frederick, but the problem is that she loves Frederick because in a way where she wants to marry him. And so you have all these, there's a, you know, the great exchange where, where Frederick's going to go off and, and leave so that he can destroy the pirates because he feels conscientiously bound to do so. (laughs) And there's a great exchange between him and the pirate king in which they're both trying to say, no, 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 you can, you can keep Ruth. That's fine. Really. I wouldn't deprive you of her, but she ends up going with Frederick and there's, when they make it to the shore, what Frederick sees the young the young daughters of the general coming down to the seashore, and he realizes that Ruth is actually an ugly old lady because he's never seen another woman before. 
And Ruth has been hiding this fact from him because she wants him to be in love with her. It doesn't work, though. And so then you have the, the great, you know, oh, false one, you have deceived me, which is a wonderful song. And then Frederick meets the young ladies and immediately falls in love with Mabel. Well, actually, immediately falls in love with all of them. None of the, none of the other ones will have him because he insults all of them. <laughs> Unintentionally. <laughs> Unintentionally insults all of them because he's just spent his life around pirates and, insul- and an old maid. That's all he's ever spent his life around. And then Mabel sees through that and says, I'll marry you. I'll, sa- I'll save you from, from basically what? Your degenerate manhood. Your, your ignorant manhood and will, and I'll marry you. And so there's, I, I find that fascinating because the idea is, well, should, <laughs> now I'm starting to get all these, I guess it's from listening to Peterson. There's all sort of these like Jungian and like, um, and sort of Freudian interpretations of that, right? He's not like, he has to leave his mother. Like he has to leave the overbearing. What's, what is, what should a young man do? A young man should have the right distance in his relationship with his mother and he should go and he should marry a beautiful young woman beautiful outwardly inwardly inwardly right the other the other young ladies are sort of how would you describe them they're sort of i don't i don't want to describe them too badly almost <laughs> a little bit callow maybe yeah yeah it's fine yeah they they they're they're too concerned with appearances the appearances of of frederick and his effective but alarming costume that he that he comes off the pirate boat with okay i have never thought about this before okay and I'm going to just double check in the libretto to make sure that this is, this is true. But, you know, the, after Mabel comes in and tells Frederick, here, I'll marry you, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other sisters say, the question is, had he not been a thing of beauty? Uh-huh. Would she be swayed by quite so keen a sense of duty? <laughs> so yeah. they are yeah. tying it back to appearances. But the very first thing that Mabel... Mabel does not enter until Frederick says, Is there not one maiden here who mm. will rescue me, basically? Yeah. And she says, yes, one, as she's entering. Which implies that she hasn't actually seen him yet. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That's that is very interesting. There's 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 almost a fairy taleish aspect to that. Mm-hmm. That's just sort of well, it's very much like Beauty and the Beast, right? She knows like there's this man who needs saving, and like she doesn't know what's underneath, and like and it's and it's her trust that she she obviously ends up with the most noble of the men, right? The 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 other daughters end up marrying the other pirates, mm-hmm. who are they leave their piracy only when they've been cornered out of it, basically, in some sense. Or they've been called out of it by their love for Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. Frederick is always trying to get out of it. The whole story, he's trying to get out of his piracy. And it's his, well, it's his misplaced sense of duty that, that keeps, him, keeps there, him there. That keeps him there. And that's... He's, he's too noble for... He's too noble. For his own nobility. <laughs> which, which I want to talk about that next. But, but to go back to Frederick and Mabel, there's this sort of, let's say, raw, basic human sanity to that. That, like, young people who love each other should get married. Like, that's just... That's just, that's just good. Like, that's just good. It, it may not be the best thing, but like, it's a, that's a great thing. And, and I'm, I find it fascinating that, that looking back on that now, that feels like a, like a, <laughs> something you almost have to be taught. It's very strange to me mm-hmm. that what, so one of the, I was listening to something about, and this sort of the, it was in relation to Yuval Harari, and he's. And I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. He's a contemporary. He's a contemporary his, historian, and I'll put that in as much of air quotes as you want. But he's written a couple of very interesting books. One of them was called *Sapiens*. The other one is called *Homo Deus*. 
And Sapiens is his history of people up until now. And Homo sapiens is his sort of, or Homo deus is sort of his future history. Mm. But in Homo in sapiens, one of his big, he basically says, we're all animals, you know, very evolutionary materialist view of the world. He says, we're all animals. Why are humans dominating the world? And his contention is, it is these, our ability to live in shared fictions. That's what he calls them. So money, what is he saying? Money, law, and religion are all shared fictions. This is what he believes. He believes they have no external reality. They're all, they only exist because they're in people's heads. And so the discussion about that was, why does that appeal to so many people? And the idea is, well, if it's all arbitrary, if these are all social constructs, then all of a sudden we can just, we can just build, we can just build whatever we want, right? Like we're no longer bound by the laws, these sort of immutable laws of nature that tell us society has to be ordered in one way and not another. Mm-hmm. And that's not, you don't need me to tell you that, right? It's obvious that like that's that's been a huge project for a long time of this of the world yeah. to say like let's break these things down and build society the way that we want. And one of the things that's interesting, what's been interesting for me is that as that's as I've grown up in that basically, and it's gotten it's gotten worse and worse. I've started to real it started to become clear to me that these things that have that I would argue are true that are basic moral facts of the universe, sort of C.S. Lewis's um, Tao. Right, these sort of always accepted everywhere kinds of things about morality. Mm-hmm. That those, well, maybe if you were a wise and thoughtful person, you could look at the world and derive them sort of out of the facts. But for the vast majority of people, it's something that you get from other people. Mm-hmm. Right, it's a thing that's preserved. There's, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the difference between genetics and epigenetics. Mm-hmm. Genetics are the, the like what people think of about genetics. They're the base pairs. You know, they're your genes. On these, on these, you know, it's a double helix. It's a strand, this really long strand-shaped or ribbon-shaped um, molecule. Epigenetics is what's what's referring to the shape of your genetics. So you don't just have it floating around in your cell. It's bound up in primary, secondary, and tertiary structures because I don't know. You have something like four meters of DNA, like fifteen feet of DNA in every cell, right? <laughs> so how do you pack that down? And and the answer is. Carefully, <laughs> but when you do that, it what and this is one of the things that's this really this is a total aside. We could go into this on another occasion, but um, it's not. There's nothing simpler linear about the way that DNA is utilized by a cell, and mm-hmm. the ability to access certain portions of the DNA is determined by the way that it's packaged. And so you have all these different molecule proteins that bind to it, and RNA and stuff like that that makes parts of it more active or less active. That is something that you receive directly from your parents. So the the epigenetic state of your genome is something that is determined environmentally. It's mutable, right? The ep- your epigenetics can change based on what you do with your life, the way that you treat your body, dietary, environmental issues, all of that. And then if you have children, a lot of those changes are passed down to your child hmm. immediately in a way where like, I think the average is from parent to child, there's like four unique base pair changes out of 4 billion. So you have very, so actual genetic change is extraordinarily slow. It's almost all just recombination of stuff from parents. Mm-hmm. Epigenetic changes are happening on a much fa- within a lifetime. And so if you can see where I'm going with this, the real is, I think one of the realizations that a lot of people have woken up to is turns out that sort of this like basic this basic aspect of life, what C.S. Lewis calls the Tao, I would like to refer to as sanity. Okay. As human sanity 
is like epigenetics more than it's like genetics. It's, it's, it's something that has to be taught. And then when you, when you, when you realize that you realize, well, almost everything that people have been talking about for forever is basically this. They've just been like teaching you. I mean, it's why Homer was a textbook, basically a textbook for education for men, because when you read Homer, you learned how to, you know, prepare a cow to, for slaughter, you know, after it's been slaughtered and you learned how to be a soldier and how you learned how to give speeches and on and on and on. And so when I look at Gilbert and Sullivan, I, it's, it's really interesting to me to see the humor, the, the aspects of the humor sort of presuppose that you're a sane human being, mm-hmm. right? You have to like already know that you shouldn't be a pirate, right? You have to know that an old nursery maid shouldn't try to marry her, 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 her charge. Mm-hmm. You should, and so on and so on and so on. And so there's this sort of double layer of it where, yes, we laugh at how silly it is. But if you laugh, you, you, you already have to be sane to be able to look at that and laugh, to find it funny. <clears throat> but it's also trying to, to poke at those things, I think. Excellent. By, yes. Okay. Go, uh, by going to a, a, at least one level further down. So there's a very, it's, it's one of those places where Gilbert really gets satirical. They're mm-hmm, usually not mm-hmm. the best quality places in his writing, uh-huh. but it's really easy to get his point. Where Frederick and the Pirate King are talking, and Frederick says, I wish I could persuade you to go back to civilization with me, mm-hmm. so that I wouldn't have to destroy you, because it's my duty to destroy pirates, now mm-hmm. that I'm not indentured <laughs> to you anymore. Now that I'm not a pirate, And yep. the Pirate King says, um, we can't go with you. I don't think much of our profession, but contrasted with respectability, it is comparatively honest. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you have to know... On multiple levels that piracy is dishonest uh, and that other things are considered more respectable and, you know, more morally correct. And Gilbert wants to shake that up and make you ask, well, are the things that we take for granted that we're doing all the time actually more honest than piracy? Than piracy, yeah. Well, so then I would, I would, I would come back, I, I, would, I would add to that that I think there's another degree of subtlety, which is, which is actually a very healthy one for our society right now. So then, so right, you have the, the sort of astonishing transformation of the pirates into peers mm-hmm. at the very end of it, which is funny because then the pirate king is, has become the thing that he says he won't be because of his moral objections yes. to it. <laughs> and, and you think, okay, well, why is, why is Gilbert writing that? And he's like, well, because he looks at the peers and says, are they any better than pirates? And there's some truth to that, mm-hmm. right? People in positions of political power have a tendency to be piratic and and you'd say, okay, well, what should our response to that be? Obviously not acceptance. But on the other hand, should we tear this, should we tear the world apart because of that? Well, I mean, I would say that the 20th century has hopefully cured us of the idea that if you just go and you say, anyone who's corrupt, we're just going to cut their heads off or throw them in prison or something. And we're going to put new people in positions of power who will not act in piratic ways. Mm-hmm. It's like, is that really a political resolution? And I would say, look at the 20th century, and I would say, and, and the answer is absolutely not. It doesn't work. You right, know. so so what is... You know, execute, install, repeat. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And so then, so then I look at the world around me, and I say, and there's this sort of like, there's this moral fanaticism to the expectations for our leaders. And I would say, absolutely, hold them to high standards. I don't want morally degenerate leaders. Mm-hmm. But this sort of like, witch hunt for particularly for leaders that you disagree with to say 
they're destroying our company, our country because, you know, they're destroying our society because, you know, this leader and this leader and this leader did these things that are wrong. And <clears throat> when, then I look, when I look back at what Gilbert has to say, I would say, well, no, that's actually not right. Corruption is, in its varying degrees, is a basic political fact. And there has to be some other way for society to cohere. Again, which is to come back to that point, which that's is... a very cynical view, but probably I, true. Well, yeah, I... It's cynical. I would say it's a cynicism that leads to hopefulness. Here's why I would say that because I would contend that I would and and this and the play the play sort of has this shape too, that the purpose of a society is not for it to be a good society as such. The purpose of a good of a, of a society is to allow people to be good. So society finds its fulfillment in in the people living in it. That's a false dichotomy, though, because if you have good people living in your society, then you should have a good society. And yes. if you don't have a society that's, if you have a society that's not good, then you're not going to allow people to be good in it. I right. I I would agree with that completely. Let me try to let me try to make clarify what I'm thinking. So, what I'm saying is you have two you have two societies, right? One some they're both hypothetical. Well, one of them's hypothetical. The other one I think is real. The hypothetical one is you have, you have <clears throat> perfectly moral leaders, okay? You're, you're, the leaders are perfectly moral. And then the people in the society are, are corrupt. They're, they're less than they could be. They're immoral in various ways. That's one society. The other society is one where the people are basically good and you have corrupt leaders. Which is the better? Which, which would you say is... I would contend that the second one is still fulfilling its is more fulfilling its role as a society than the first one. I know there's a relationship between the two, particularly in like democratic Sorry, societies. Can we distinguish them again. The first one you have you have moral leaders, immoral citizens. The okay. second one you have immoral leaders, moral citizens. Okay. Which one is more fulfilling its its role? And you say it's immoral leaders, moral citizens. Absolutely. I would definitely I would definitely contend that. Do you have pre-existing societal structures that permit that to happen? Because if the immoral leaders are determining the society, then then how do you get the moral citizens in your your hypothesis? Oh well, it, what part of it is is a society in which there's just less top-down control of people. Okay. There's more organic peasant cult, if for lack of a better word, peasant culture, right? We have a we have an extraordinarily top-down culture. I don't know if you would agree with me on that, but there's very little organic bottom-up sort of village life culture. Almost everything comes in terms of the elected political or just de facto cultural leaders. You have a, there's, there's a lot of influence concentrated in a very small place that comes down. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm picturing <coughs> a, a purer form of what you're talking mm. about than you are. and And so you're talking about something that's actually much messier and that might actually exist in real life not yes. this sort of you know we just built a society let, in the clouds then let, <laughs> yeah right no so, so let me then let me present sort of the practical question okay can we get on with the business of being a good society if there are failures amongst our leaders <laughs> we'd better be able to <laughs> right that's exactly my point and i think that's the sanity of the conclusion of the pirates of penzance which says look we get it we're ruled by pirates but like we're still going to be happy, we're still going to love our queen, we're still going to get married and start families. Instead of the sort of like I can't 
I can't get on with anything until I have purged the government or I've purged culture of mm-hmm. its evils, of its ills. For one thing, I think part of it is it's a hopeless project. And I, and, and I think that Gilbert is, in as much as there's certainly tragic, there's tragedy, there's deep tragedy in that. And I don't think you can deny it and, or you should deny it. On the other hand, I think there's another side of it, which is what Gilbert is trying to, pre- is presenting consciously or unconsciously, probably mostly unconsciously, which is, yes, but at the end of the day, like, it's okay to laugh at just how, like, we're kind of all silly. Mm-hmm. Like, we should get on with the business of being good humans. Well, and that, you know, that is fundamentally what, in a very exaggerated form, <laughs> the pirates and Frederick are already doing from the beginning of the play. Mm-hmm, they are mm-hmm. doing their duty and expecting other people to do theirs. Yes, yes, in a very in an excellent way. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that, that's great. That quote that we started with, Frederick sees it as his duty to go destroy the pirates. And the pirate king says, we can't blame you for acting in accordance with the dictates of your conscience. <laughs> that means destroying us. And, and the pirates, by their own lights, you know, they have, they have their code of conduct they they're they leave any orphan alone they leave anyone who says he's an orphan alone the degree which turns of, the degree out to be yes. everyone because now everyone knows that they won't hurt an the orphan degree, so everyone says that they're orphans the degree of interpersonal trust that's going on there on their yes. part no that's i mean that's a that is a that's a great point it actually reminds me of again of lewis I, I don't know where it is and you might be able to tell me but he talks about how he imagines that like you know an, a, a british and a german soldier like kill each other on the front lines and they meet each other in heaven. They're like, no hard feelings, basically. Mm. And there's this sort of like, yeah, we just, we, we've got these things that we've got these roles that we have to, to, to play out. And, and in some ways that's the, you know, there's the other sort of like lighthearted side to this. It's the idea that let's say life is more like a dance in some ways than we would put it other times. You know, you just have to act this out and like no hard feelings. Like, Real, you know, no hard feelings that we're pirates and that you're you have to come and kill us. Like, that's kind of what it's like to be a pirate. We don't blame we don't blame you for it. You know, we're just gonna go on with the business of 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 doing you know the things we have to do and and yeah I so so the other side of that and and so there's sort of these we've been I've been I've been presenting you with sort of ideas of sanity right like it's good for young people to get married mm-hmm. it's you know. It's good for people to tell the truth. It's good for you to love the queen, right? Those, those sorts of ideas. There's another aspect to it, and, we, and you, you hit on it with, you know, if you're bound by your, you know, your, your, conscience, your, your conscience to kill us, or, you know, that Frederick goes back to the pirates because of his sense of duty, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, why is that funny? It's like, oh, because, well, because that's not what du- duty, duty in a private contract doesn't make you required to be a criminal, <laughs> For yeah. the rest of your life. Well, why is that? It's like, well, because, well, because there's a proper order to things. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay. And so then that's sort of the other side to all the humor, right? Which is it's constantly poking fun at the way that, in this case, Victorian England has got sort of the, the hierarchy of values out of shape, mm-hmm. right? It, well, it exa- Gilbert exaggerates it even, even further, further yes. in order to try to point out that they'd already exaggerated some beyond it's, where it should be. And, and, and I, and I it seems to me that that's kind of the job of satire in every, in any day and age that it exists is to take the absurdities of, of your time and place and make them clear enough that you, you, now you can see, 
Mm-hmm. You can say, oh, hold on. Maybe we shouldn't be taking duty that seriously. Right. Maybe, or maybe lower forms of duty. Right. I, mm-hmm. to getting, getting the, so there's this, this sort of sense of like rationality, like pure human rationality in the sense of there's a ratio, there's an order to things. Well, you know, the subtitle of Pirates of Penzance is the slave of duty. The slave of duty, right. Which yeah. implies that he has a disordered relationship to yes, duty. Yes, exactly. Which is, again, I think what they were kind of saying about Victorian England in general. Mm-hmm. There, there's this sort of slavish, this slavish attitude towards it and, um... Yeah, it, there's also it, speaking of that and, and the sort of you know, no harm. We're all just doing you know we're just we're just living out our roles. The the wonderful um, <laughs> exchange between the 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 captain of the police and and Mabel, where the captain of the police starts denigrating Frederick for going back to the pirates as he should, and Mabel says he has done his duty. <laughs> go you and do yours, which is to capture the pirates, which is to go and capture her beloved and and you know maybe kill him in combat, but. She's not going to hold no, it against that's the. That's not happening with those policemen. <laughs> <laughs> what do you? What do you? So what? Do you, well, then speaking of the policemen, I love the policemen. I think the policemen are hilarious. What do you take of their their song, their their main song? When the bowman, uh, when, not when the foeman bears his steel. It's when the felon when the felon's not engaged in his employment. Mm-hmm. In the light of this conversation, what do you think of that? <laughs> I think that it is tapping into that same sense that people have roles that they're acting out and sometimes those roles so the the song says it's talking about these different bad actors that the policemen have to deal with and how the policemen would really rather not deal with them because when they're not doing those bad things you know they love to lie basking in the sun you know they have the common enjoyments of mankind yeah um but but the particular roles that we have require us to interfere with other people. Yes. Like the yeah. policemen are required to go after the pirates. And like Frederick thinks that he's required to go back and join the pirates. Or like Frederick thinks that it's his duty to destroy the pirates. So depending on what your role is, you may be required to go interfere with someone else's role. And the policemen are lamenting that in a way because... Yeah. You know, you get into this idea of everyone sort of being in the role that they're supposed to be in, almost. You know, it's a very orderly society. Well, the, the pirates even have a king. The pirates even have a king. Yeah, the pirates have a king. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you end up feeling bad, I think, when you're job requires you to disturb that order really in any way yeah yeah well it's well the policemen do the policemen do <laughs> the pirates seem to rather relish it but <laughs> yeah. that's you know that's a pirate so i i yeah it's it's interesting it, it, there's almost this um i don't know there's this sort of like almost m- when i talk about it this way it almost feels like this sort of mis- quality of mysticism about it this sort of well you know, it really does tap into the idea of a common humanity, I think. Yes, yes. And There's so, this sort of this sort of like looking up from matters and say, look, don't take it quite so seriously because we're all people. We can look each other in the eyes for a little bit and kind of see that this is this is a little bit of a game. There's a little bit of a game to be played here. And it doesn't mean that it's not also very serious. But like there is maybe maybe don't take it so se- not I don't I don't want to say that. Not that you can't take it too seriously. There's space for looking at each other, sort of. 
Does that is that a, how would you say it? Well, I think that's what the policemen are doing yeah. in their song. Um, they are looking at the felon and the coster and saying, "These are people too." Yeah. And we don't see those characters. Yeah. But we do see a well, confrontation we, but, between the policemen and the pirates who are sort of in that role here. They're the the criminals that the policemen are going after. And so what they do is they are in conflict until they unexpectedly find that they are all humans who all love Queen Victoria. Who all love Queen Victoria. Which is, I would say is sort of a... It's sort of maybe, it may be a bit of a rebuttal to Gerard, right? That there's all these, you, you've got these warring parties and they're in conflict. And then it's like, well, they don't go and like kill someone as a way to, you know, sort of exercise the violence in the conflict. Rather, the thing that binds the society together is love, is common love, which is what we said. And rather than the sacrifice, which I think is really interesting, although there's sort of a sacrifice there too, right? There, well, it's a self-sacrifice. The policemen have to. Sorry, the pirates have to give themselves. They have to up give themselves for the up for the sake of their love of Queen Victoria. Right, and well, and then the policemen have to give themselves up in their fear to face the pirates. Right, mm-hmm. they don't. They don't want to go because you know the foeman is going to bear his steel, and they're not very excited about the fact that every Cornish daughter will wet their graves with tears. Like that's not appealing to them. There. <laughs> The, bar- the, the policemen are eminently practical. <laughs> but, and also, this, this appeal is their last-ditch effort. The pirates have already overcome them. Yeah, yeah. Before the policemen try appealing to Queen Victoria's name. And what, you know, it's their last effort, but it also turns out to be the thing that the pirates can't figure out how to get around. You know, I'm looking at the, the king... When the king responds to that, the the sergeant of police says, "We charge you yield in Queen Victoria's name." King, baffled. <laughs> you do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, we didn't expect you to try that one on us. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny too. Well, you 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 know you brought up that the we don't see the felon and the and the coster. Um, but we do see the pirates, and the pirates are also sort of engaged in the common thing of humanity. I mean, when when the when the scene, when the play opens, they're celebrating a birthday party of one of their friends. Mm-hmm. You know, what do they want to do? Well, they want to get married. They want to hang out. You know, they want to spend time <laughs> with their friends. Yep. You know, it's like the problem is they just do it wrong, right? <laughs> yes. They, it's well, they love poetry, and they love poetry, right? They love poetry. They, <laughs> they, they're they've they've got this band of brothers, right? Obviously, they have they have this sort of like, well, the pirate king is basically he's the wrong point of coherence, right? He's a king. He's he he's mm-hmm. he's the he is part of society focused on the wrong thing, which is interesting because in one sense the their wrong thing is this sort of misplaced idea of morality, of su- superior morality, mm-hmm. right? Oh no, we can't participate in society because we're too much better. Yes, right. <laughs> Our code of conduct exceeds that of society, and so like we have to go off and live by ourselves in the ocean. And it's like, well, problem is. I mean, that's, that's actually quite wise when you think about that. You know, the whole idea of we're going to go off and, like, do this other thing because we're so much better than other people. It's like, what happens to you? Generally, you turn into pirates. Like, that's usually the outcome. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I find that I, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting one right there. But, yeah, I, I, I'm, 
I'm tickled by it. It continues to it continues to be it has depth to it, I would say, for being such a mm-hmm. silly play. You know what's interesting and I hadn't hadn't thought about this before. There is a I think an implication of stability and lastingness when they come together around their love of the queen mm-hmm. that is highlighted by the fact that almost the same thing happens in the first act finale where the pirates are baffled by what someone tells them. Right. When the major general yes. tells oh, them, yes. I'm an orphan. Yes. And they, they accept that for now. But in the second act, there's peace. There's peace temporarily. In the second oh, act, wow. that's revealed as a deception. As a lie. And, yes. And the pirates, I think, almost become disillusioned and say, we're going after revenge. And w- right before mm. the police, the police sergeant says, I charge you yield in Queen Victoria's name. The the pirate captain says, don't say you're orphans, for we know that game. <laughs> yes. And so that point of... The pirates have lost that point of connection with the rest of society. Mm, They've been disillusioned. broken trust. Broken trust. They don't believe people automatically anymore when they say oh. that they're orphans. But... Their love of Queen Victoria doesn't depend on what someone else is telling them. Yeah. It's deeper and better than that. Well, that, I mean, that is, I, I, I'm, 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 I, I buy it. I love that reading of the play right there. That, that there's an attempted resolution, but it's built on a, on a falsehood, mm-hmm. on a lie. And the only thing that can come, out, come from that is much greater conflict, right? Mm-hmm. The pirates are off there in the ocean doing their thing, occasionally trying to get married. Um, <laughs> but then someone made this created a false peace and boy they stirred up the hornet's nest now the pirates are coming for your house right mm-hmm. they're coming into your home and it's like that's not what you want to happen so if you're going to look at life and say i mean this is a, to, to take jordan peterson's it's like tell the truth always all the time or at least don't tell lies you know it's mm-hmm. that's that's really wonderful i love that so <laughs> Don't make if you're gonna make deals with the margin, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to resolve, integrate the chaos, it has to be on the basis of truth. It has to be on the basis of speaking truth and not on the basis of something else. Mm-hmm. I love that. You have any you have any other <laughs> good ones to lay for <laughs> lay out for me like that? Well, the you know, the issue of truth telling is brought up and it's always dealt with pretty humorously. Mm-hmm. The the pirates just Except, at first, mm-hmm. you know, that whoever says he's an orphan is an orphan. Frederick says the last three ships we took proved to be <laughs> entirely by orphans. <laughs> and, you know, we know that's not true. The pirates are willing to work with that until it is forced in their face that someone has yeah. told them a lie. Yeah. And, and the lie brings its own bad consequences. The the major general says that he would go to the pirates and admit that he had told a lie if he didn't fear that the consequences would be most disastrous to himself. <laughs> but it's too late for that. Yeah. The, you know, the consequences haven't been set in action yet. Mm-hmm. Frederick has to go mm-hmm. tell them that the major general has told a lie out of his sense of duty now that he's their apprentice again. Um <laughs> But the Major General has told the lie. It's sitting there waiting to blow up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, what do you think of that 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 put in mind um, Frederick's departure and the you know the hilarious exchange with Mabel? You know, in nineteen forty, I of age shall be. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like in sixty years I can come. Sixty three years I can come back and marry you. And and then they have this song about their faith, that how they'll be faithful to each other. Mm-hmm. And Frederick, Frederick, Frederick follows through on that. And this is this is this is where it starts to get a little weird to me. It's because of that sense of duty that he goes back to the pirates and tells them. And then because the pirates now believe that, understand that the, they've been lied to, that they come back, the policemen are set against them. And then the pirates are reintegrated and there's a marriage of all, everyone. It's not just Frederick and Mabel. Mm-hmm. Now the parents, all the, all the daughters marry pirates who are now peers. They've been restored to this position of glory in society. And it's actually Frederick's blind obedience to duty that causes all of that. It's so like, <laughs> is the joke on Gilbert to some sense? Well, okay. So here's, 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 here's the reason this has been on my mind. Cause I just reread the Lord of the Rings. And one of the things that I noted this time is um, at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, in the, the beginning of the Two Towers, so, Mary, so Frodo and Sam go off. There's the breaking of the Fellowship. Frodo and Sam go off. Boromir is slain. The hop, two hobbits are taken by by the orcs to go to 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 be taken to Saruman. And Aragorn has to decide what is he going to do. What is he going to do? Is he going to go and try to find Frodo and Sam in the wilderness, or is he going to act on his sense of loyalty to the two hobbits? To go, he's going to go and he's going to find them and try to rescue them from the orcs. And when you look at it in sort of like a practical sense, it's like, well, no, Aragorn is one of the, he's, he's one of the Dunedain. Like he's one of the, he's the mightiest warrior to walk on this earth, right? He's arguably like the second, the most powerful personage after Sauron, the elves and Gandalf, the elven lords and Gandalf. Like he's a mighty man. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't waste him. Don't waste yourself. Like the practical thing is go after Frodo and try to help him get into Mordor. But instead, out of his sense of duty and love to his friends, who he feels like he has a real chance to rescue, he goes after them to Rohan. And if you read it carefully, that is the, that is the thing that leads to every other event in the story. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that, that is just, I mean, that's just really struck me. It's like, he doesn't do the practical thing. He does this like thing that is an intense act of duty to his relationship, his friendship with the young hot with the t- two hobbits. He also does it though out of a sense that he no longer has a duty to Frodo and Sam, which is very that interesting. is yes, that too, right? He sees it. He sees it as being written. He says like he says something along the lines of, "They're past my help. It's been shown to me that I'm not supposed to go." Mm-hmm. And then he throws himself into this other thing. But I just it's it's very those two those two read very similar to me in certain is being very similar in certain ways. Frodo says, sorry, not Frodo, Frederick, Frederick looks at the contract and says, I wish it had been worded otherwise, basically, but like, I guess I'm still in it for another 60, you know, six decades. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of that? What do you think of that idea? I don't think that we are supposed to see Frederick's overweening sense of duty as, as admirable as or worthwhile. Correct. As correct. But it doesn't shake out like that in the narrative, and that's what's so interesting. <laughs> it's an exaggerated form of something that's actually good. It's not that we're supposed to look at that and see 
the duty gets exaggerated too so too far so we should reject duty. Right. It's, okay, great. Yes. Instead, you know, it's actually a virtue mm-hmm. in its correct form. Mm-hmm. And it also is a it's a discipline for Frederick. I think it grows him into the person that he is. Frederick is mm-hmm. a capable fighter. Mm-hmm. He's prepared to take on the pirates mm-hmm. when he thinks he's not going to be one anymore. Mm-hmm. Using the same skills that he learned that taught through him. Yeah. being an obedient apprentice in the role to which he considered himself <laughs> duty-bound. <laughs> oh, that's, that is so... That is interesting. Yes, um, at least that. That mm-hmm. Frederick's duty is to be mocked not because duty is to be mocked. But because an, because wrongly placed duty should be corrected. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just it's so interesting. There, I mean, again, again, I may be I may be making this you know deeper than I ought, but I can't like it. it sort of feels like Job. I don't know when people start to tell true stories and when they've been around that for that long. Elements yeah. of truth yeah. in them. There's, then there's, you can dig the truth out even if that well, was what they meant. <laughs> there's some. There's some. There's even some of Job in there, right? Where there's this sort of. His life is wrecked by what's happened, but, like, he isn't going to... He's not going to accept sort of the easy explanation for things. And then in the story, in the case of Job, it's not just that Job is restored to his fortunes. He then becomes the intercessor for for his friends. The idea being that he then becomes the means of the sort of restoration of his friends' lives as well. And there's this... That's that's happening with, with Frederick, too. He becomes... If not the means, the cause, the the efficient cause of the events that lead the pirates to be reintegrated and to be married, mm-hmm. to be happy. That's interesting. It's sort of his like sacrifice of himself. It, I mean, it even has it even has the shape of Tolkien's you catastrophe, right? The catastrophe comes oh, on Frederick. <laughs> it comes on Frederick that he has to be a pirate again, right? It's it's the end of his life. He's ruined. Mm-hmm. He has to leave the woman he loves and betray his father. He feels like. And then somehow out of that becomes, precipitates all of the events that not only does he get what he wants, now he doesn't have to kill his friends and they get to be married and everyone's dancing and happy and there's, you know, you know, a doctor of divinity will shortly come and marry all of them together. And so, I mean, it's really wonderful. And that, and that's sort of the comedy, you know, I'm, I'm re- so I'm reading through the brothers Karamazov right now and I've, that line, which is that from Dostoevsky, that's very famous, that it's, it's also really interesting, the con- re- remembering the context that it's in where he says, Something along the lines of, at the end, something so precious will happen that it will account for all of the pain, all of the tragedy, and all of the heartbreak. And not only so so much so that you will excuse it, but like you will be thankful for it. Like something that precious will happen at the end of the story. Now what's interesting is that that's Yvonne saying that. Hmm. Which is very... I, I, it sounds like something Alyosha would say. It's mm-hmm. not. It's, something, it's from Yvonne. It's in their first... The first time they sit down together and have like a long conversation is right before the 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 Inquisitor. Um, but Yvonne says that he believes that. He just doesn't accept the front end. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about that, right, because that's sort of the basic struggle between with Alyosha and Yvonne is, is Alyosha accepts it. Alyosha says like, look, I know it's painful. I mean, he's the one who's in, 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 in a real sense, he's bearing the pain of all of his family members in his community around him. And Yvonne says, I, I just won't buy it. I don't buy it. I, I will not accept that children could suffer in this way. He, I want out. And, and so there, this is sort of the, 
we're, I was, I was talking earlier about the idea of something like this, teaching us sort of the basic sanity of like, you know, young people, it's good for young people to get married to each other. Um, you know, it's good to do your duty. It's good to be brave. All right. It's good for that matter. It's good to be trusting like to the pe- to the right people. This mm-hmm. sort of, it's teaching you how to be a sane human being. I think there's a, there's an even deeper level thinking about comedy itself. Right. And, and this is related to the eucatastrophe, which is, it is, it is rehearsing. Well, it's, it's instilling in you the virtue of hope, the theological, to some degree, the theological virtue of hope, which is to say, it really can happen. It really can happen that these things that you're in the middle of and look like a total mess and you don't know how you can get out on the other side, they really will come together. There really will be a marriage on the other side and we will all somehow like look across and say, I love the same, well, we love our king and like, and we're going to dance off into eternity together. <laughs> and that's what comedy should do. That's what good comedy is. It, it teaches us that because we can't see it. And so we have to live out that story over and over until we believe it. I think that's a good place to end. Mm-hmm.